Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to end up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio, back with you for the 555th time. Um, there's been a lot. We've done a lot. We're going to keep going. We are literally ways we record this episode, like five days away from releasing our book, Commencement, the Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education, supported by the insights of 100-plus college and university presidents. It's available on pre-order for, for pre-order on Amazon right now. By the time you heard this episode, or this episode is released, we'll have sold at least two copies, one to my wife and one to Elvin's wife. Uh, maybe not any more than that, but you know what? That's the way it goes. We hope you'll, th uh, you'll consider buying the book. Um, there would be no better way to catch up on the great insights of this podcast and the leaders that we've interviewed than to grab that book for a couple bucks and uh, find out what the future of higher education is going to look like according to the people that do the job every single day. And with that, uh, the end of the begging for you to buy the book, ladies and gentlemen. How have I done? Have you considered to buy it? All right, I'll beg more next time. Um, we have a great co-host um, here. This is his second. First, he was a guest. Then he came back to co-host. Um, he screwed up a couple of times, but not so many times that we wouldn't bring him back. Disaster. Uh, but we, uh, we, we brought him back. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. He's Dr. Chuck Ambrose. He's chancellor of Henderson State University. Chuck, what is up? Joe, now I know what I'm going to do for holiday shopping and what I'm going to get my wife, a copy of commencement, right? So, um, I, no, it's a disaster. <laughs> no, don't do that. You'll, you'll be, you'll be in trouble. You got to get her like a ring or say, you know, no, no, get, get the book truck. That's great. I'm doing great. And thanks for inviting me. It's a conversation I've looked forward to. Awesome. Um, we, we love when, um, we can put two people together. I will tell you guys, um, and give you a little uh, podcast behind the scenes insight as we brought on our uh, Chuck and our special guest today. It, it was like there was no podcast. I could have literally just left the uh, recording and these two would have talked probably for several hours. In fact, I had to interject like, hey, guys, we're here to record a podcast. I, I swear they would have just done the whole episode. So I'm not sure what value I'm going to provide today. So I'm just going to bring her in right now, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Kelly Dorr, she's co-founder of Acuity Insights. Kelly, how are you? I, I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to chatting with you and Chuck even more so than we already did. I feel like I should just hand it over to you, Chuck. No, I won't. I got to at least ask one question here. Kelly, um, uh, a good place for us to always start is we, we ask this first question. What is Acuity Insights? Um, what yeah. do you do and how do you do it? And that will set the stage for how the rest of the episode goes. That, that's a great question. Um, we've actually recently evolved. Um, we were two companies that were, were separate, uh, Altus Assessments and 145, and we merged together based on a common goal. So Altus started off with a goal to develop a uh, situational judgment test to measure personal and professional attributes or social intelligence and professionalism in folks applying to medicine. 145 was the company that provided all the solutions to uh, medicine programs, really trying to figure out um, how they could help them in their day-to-day. -day. And both of us were collectively saying, you know what, in higher ed, there's a ton of data that we get. 
How do we help companies better use that data, better understand that data so that they're, you know, not just spending their time looking for the data, but they're actually applying it to make the lives of their students better. That's a great, uh, you, you guys do a lot. You have a lot of different types of services and underpinned by data, right? Like that's the idea is that everything is data driven. Um, and for higher ed for a long time, and I think maybe until recently schools use data sometimes, don't use data all the time. Um, but as we look to the future of what higher education is and looks like, I, I think data has never been more important, especially as the consumer, the student is learning in different ways and wanting things in different amounts and at different times. And so it's really hard sometimes to pin down what the preferences are of students and such. So talk about the data and, and how it infuses the product offerings that you have. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'll maybe start with a reverse of what I just explained. So why we wanted to bring together the data is in higher ed, and, and I'll say we started in the sandbox of medical education. So how we train and assess competency in people who wanna be physicians. Um, there's a ton of data there, but oftentimes each individual division or program was, was in a little silo. So they each had their own data and we tend to be very protective of the data that we have um, depending on our particular role in the university. And what that means though, is that we have a very limited ability to help learners understand how they can improve or, or maybe intervene early if we don't have the bigger picture. We also don't know how our program's performing or could be performing even better if we had more context about what folks were doing or what folks were coming. My biggest example is the disconnect that happens between when people apply to the program and when they start. Um, for some reason, there seems to be this giant wall that's created between those two pieces of data. And I, <laughs> I'm a fundamental believer that your admissions data is actually your first piece of in-program data. It can help shape uh, and support how we bring the learners in and how we support them in that transition to education. Ah, very, I, I, I agree. And as an enrollment person at heart, marketing enrollment person at heart, um, I think we do uh, a less than stellar job across the industry of using those incoming preferences to inform the rest of the student journey. And I think it does depend on the type of learner, right? If you look at an 18 year old coming out of high school and say, they say, I want to be an electro electrical engineer at 18, you wonder if they even know what that means sometimes. And they end up be becoming a, um, a speech communications major. Um, I am a speech communications major and no, I did not look at electrical engineering, uh, but, uh, but, um, and then there's the adult student who's going to make a career change and, and may, might know more about what they want to do and how they want. And you can't do those things the same. You can't offer things the same, uh, but the incoming journey, the, the incoming path tells you a lot about the journey, I think. And, uh, and is that an area that do you think schools fully understand how that can inform the rest of the processes? No. Okay. <laughs> I, knew my... I knew you might say that. How might you yeah. elaborate? Kelly? No, not at all. Um, I think, I think we tend to be maybe a little bit, um, you know, apprehensive about what it would mean to open that box of information and what it would what? mean then we, yeah, we would have to do and what we would have to kind of 
Huh, you know, really do to to think through the different ways. I'm I'm always struck, I'll say. So I had the opportunity to work both in medical school admissions, but also assessments. And I was always struck by the mandate. And, and you know, you've heard this too across higher education to, uh, you know, widen access to higher education. How can we bring in more and more diverse um, people with different pathways and different experiences into higher education? Because that's at the end of the day, what we want in our workforce, no matter if we're talking about medicine, if we're talking about engineering um, or communication, you know, we want to think about how we can maximize that. And what I'm always struck by is that, we brought folks in, maybe we changed the way we did admissions. Um, and then that information was never conveyed over to the in-program. So then we would just get feedback. Well, those folks struggled. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah. yes, if you put them in this solid box that is your program without any consideration about what you might need to do to widen access there, they're going to struggle. Um, and so having that con continuity of information, I think would help, at least as a starting point. Speaking of somebody with a lot of continuity and information, my co-host, Chuck Ambrose, over to you. So Kelly, you know, I, I have, uh, as I mentioned to you, uh, really looked forward to hearing your journey, right? Because uh, in a lot of ways, as you and Joe were talking about the use of data, uh, you know, higher ed's kind of tracked about a decade behind healthcare and understanding, right? Uh, in terms of uh, outcome-based, uh, Fastest rising costs to, to families is healthcare only track right behind college, right? So there's so many similarities. Uh, and, you know, how you, you're a doctor, right? Uh, something along the way, kind of the light bulb went off and said uh, either it impacted me in terms of how I was being prepared, uh, but your background up against, uh, you know, what you guys are offering, not just to medical schools, but institutions to have the predictive interventional and help to drive better outcomes, right? What, what in your path kind of made that light bulb go off? Um, wow, that's a great question. Uh, I think in my path, so I've always been one to challenge the way that we did things. Um, for rightly, or I don't know if that earned me friends or enemies along the way, um, but just even in terms of the way that we we looked at admissions as a starting point, like changing fundamentally the data that we use to do that and thinking outside the box, what else could we do? Um, but I also saw so many folks along the way, you know, struggle in different ways. And we were so late to pick them up. So if you think about, you know, the, the student who's at the head of the class performing exceptionally, um, and then they had a dip and maybe, you know, that dip wasn't enough that they failed an exam or something, but for them, it was a significant dip. That's something that easily gets lost. Yeah. <laughs> in the process. And I think one of the things that, you know, that could be a sign that they need mental health or that there's a personal issue going on. And if we're looking towards, you know, the success and early intervention and early figuring out how do we get targeted information uh, about that learner, is so critically important that that can change their pathway, but it also changes the relationship between the learners and the programs. I think it's it becomes less transactional and more mutual goals of success. So your your assessments are different, right? I, I mean, I just when you think about the the missional kind of holistic something that K twelve's figured out in terms of whole child, uh, social emotional. Uh, 
how do you translate that not only to, to college, but then more specifically to professional schools, right? What, when you assess, what are you able to provide in terms of predictive opportunities to either intervene to elevate likelihood or uh, really encourage? What, what, on the holistic side, what, what's different? Yeah, I'll, I'll maybe start with our CASPER test, which is our online situational judgment test. So that's where we first started with Altus is we developed that at McMaster University back in uh, 2004 to date myself significantly here. Um, but we really wanted a way that we could look more holistically at folks applying to medical school to include not just their academic prowess, which we know is so important, but their personal and professional attributes, because we know that things like communication and collaboration and things like that, not only do they make more successful physicians, but they lead to better patient outcomes. Um, and so how do we consider that at the beginning? And so what we wanted to do is create a way that was defensible, but also allowed for that diversity of perspective. And so we took a completely different approach to uh, a situational judgment test, which I can describe. But the goal was to really find ways to bring that information in early so that we were starting to consider a broader group of folks. And what we know about that data, um, you know, most of our data is in medicine and other healthcare, because that's where we've been the longest in terms of looking at outcomes. But what we've seen is correlations with professionalism outcomes into later training and even uh, residencies. So after people are done medical school, once they start their specialized training, whether that's pediatrics or surgery or OB, what we see is that um, they're getting higher success in professionalism's ratings, things like that. We also see less professionalism remediations um, for folks that are, are going through the programs, which is one of the things that I think is really important. You know, I mean, fundamentally, we know that people put a lot of pressure on themselves to be academically successful uh, when they're applying to these specialized programs and just even in general. And I think what we want to do is have a bit of a culture shift where it's like, there's more than that. To be successful, it is all of these things together. Epic. Let me let me jump in, Chuck. Um, I, I had this conversation yesterday because I knew you do more than just medical. <clears throat> in the medical field, you've got like business education and others. And I'm focusing on maybe um, other than the medical, when you're talking about medical students, I think there's an idea to your point that there is some level of high academic achievement from the beginning. But as you move into something like business education, that's more for the masses, so to speak. I literally was having this conversation yesterday. I work at Lindenwood and we were having philosophical conversations. Where do we sit in the marketplace and who are we trying to serve? And you know, always somebody uh, says, well, our attention will go up if we just accept um, only students who are academically prepared with a GPA. And I go, yes. That, that's one of the biggest um, biggest jokes in higher ed is if you want to have amazing outcomes, the best ever, and you want to have amazing retention, then just don't accept anybody. You know, just just take a few and you know the few smartest, and you're gonna. And then there's this big piece about grit and taking calculated risks. And how do you, you know, take a student with a lower GPA? How do you take an adult student ten years later who got a 1.5 GPA in an undergrad? who's now a manager in a business and go, yeah, your undergrad is going to prevent you from coming here. What does their undergrad degree have anything to do with the last 10 years of business, right? So can you talk about that philosophical argument within higher education? Because I'm sure you've had it. 
I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, McMaster where all of this started and where I'm still an adjunct professor, um, we had this, you didn't have to have any science requirements. You didn't even have to finish your bachelor's. You just had to do three years of it in order to apply. And so, you know, that's making a statement fundamentally that you need to do something different. And that meant actually that we had a ton of folks who were uh, older applying because, you know, maybe people who hadn't considered or you know, didn't have the money to go to, you know, higher education, e even we're talking about like getting their bachelor's degree. Um, you know, I have lots of friends and family members who went back to training and education later on in life, because that's when, that's when it was feasible. And so this is something where I think, because grades are easy to measure, we become overly reliant on that. Looking at somebody holistically is hard takes more time. It takes more energy. Um, and it takes more understanding of what it is, what mission are you serving? Like, what is the goal of your, your program? <laughs> what are you trying to do? Who are you trying to graduate at the end? Um, and not that folks aren't interested in looking at that, but it, it takes a lot of resources that we don't give higher education programs or medical schools or anybody else really when we think about it. And so this concept of we'll just keep raising our grades, uh, our GPA requirements, is something that is common across the board, but is problematic because then it becomes the single target that people are looking for and the single metric of success. When in fact, um, there's a beautiful video that is describing, you know, who would you accept to be a Marine? Uh, and it is people, you know, yeah, you want somebody who's high potential and a great communicator and humble and all of those other things, but you'd much rather have somebody who is the humble communicator, um, willing to work with others than somebody's a hundred percent full potential. And I think that sort of the summarizes the kind of concept here of if you only bring in people who are super smart. Um, which there's nothing wrong with having, you know, a 4.0 grade point average, good for you. Um, but that is not everybody's pathway. Um, there are people who have to support their family while they're going to school. There are people who have to, you know, have different accommodations and learning differences that we have. And it doesn't mean that they can't be an incredibly successful person uh, in this profession, but we just have to allow different pathways for them to come in. And so I think the concept of only using grades is going to get us a very specific outcome in that profession, which is going to mean we're going to have people who are solely focused on their own academic abilities, potentially, um, and miss some of the, the greater breadth that we need in these professions. You know, we don't only need a cookie cutter type of person to come out of a profession. And so how do we create a broader intake? What do we think about, um, before I pass it back to you, Chuck, the, the concept of connected outcomes management? I like that piece on your website because it's talking about longitudinal view through enrollment, through this, through that. Can you talk a little bit about what connected outcomes management means uh, from the QD Insights perspective? Yeah, I think it's this concept of breaking down the silos that exist across um, the whole continuum of education. Amazing. So how can we take somebody's background, like that they've been a manager for 10 years before they came into this higher education program and the insights and aspects that they learned um, and bring that forward. Um, you know, I often think that we believe people have to have hit certain steps um, 
to, to get into higher education. And the whole concept of connected outcomes is you can bring in people with different pathways and different experiences and then use that data. And even if it's in program data that you're using once people are, are actually students, you can use that to get a better understanding of how you can evolve your program, how you can evolve uh, you know, this, each learner's own individual situations and how you can support them. So I think it's, it's making use of the data we're collecting because otherwise we're spending a heck of a lot of resources collecting a ton of data that we don't know how to use because it's messy and complicated to put together. 100%. Chuck got excited there for a second. Go ahead, John. <laughs> Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing. Thanks, Joe. You know, Kelly, you just said something that's really kind of been uh, forward facing this last week or so about, you know, this kind of public confidence, the public good of higher ed. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the number of employers who really don't trust grades, right, as outcome statements of uh, competency, uh, skill, uh, and uh, it would seem, right, if you have this more holistic sense of data outcomes, uh, that, you know, our expression, right, of our value proposition could be uh, elevated. I, I've got a real selfish question because we're re-engineering an institution to go all in, you know, using data uh, to drive different outcomes. If you go back to when you started, 2004, do you think the data has more value directly to the scaffold supports for a student or is there more value you've seen to the changes that institutions can make in their programs, right? Because as you, you do at Altus and now um, Acuity, you know, you've, you've, there is the program value of making adjustments to align uh, the product to what your students need. But at the same time, you're really identifying those individual interventions that can make the difference. But just when you look back and see the use of not just data, but the tools and the assessments, where do you think the, the greatest impact's been made? Um, you know, our hope always when we first created it was what, that we were empowering learners and applicants when we first started. Um, you know, this was, this was the big push when we developed even the Casper assessment is that everybody was writing personal statements to get in. Uh, that was their way of telling us that they really wanted to come in. I, I call them village statements because, you know, it's about the village you have around you to help you create the statement rather than your own personal thoughts. And, you know, we would spend a lot of time pouring into those. And unfortunately, they didn't predict much, but they all started to sound the same too. And some people who had resources would actually get other folks to write those statements for them or have... Yeah. Or, you know, maybe have people in the profession review them and that's not accessible to everybody. So how did, you know, the goal was how do we actually find a way for everybody to get a more holistic picture of themselves earlier on in the process? So is there, you would kind of state the value of data informed storytelling, right? I mean, uh, there, there's a narrative that the data actually creates. Uh, does that resonate? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, 
you know, what is somebody's trajectory? And it allows us to really change things from just a point in time assessment to being like our full judgment on somebody, whether that's their SAT score or something else to actually looking at their trajectory. Because I'll be honest, somebody who's had an incredible you know, maybe struggled at the very beginning and then had exponential growth in an area. That's the person I want to talk to. Um, not the person who maybe hasn't never struggled in their lives or, or never, you know, had to really worry about, you know, balancing different aspects or attributes. And, and so thinking about those other things that we measure and how we, we allow those to come to the surface. Uh, Joe, if you don't mind, I, yeah, I, I was so impressed with the, um, commitment to equitable review uh, because of implicit bias that kind of enters into a lot of the, the, the processes. Uh, there's also been, you know, research now expanding about kind of the implicit bias within AI and some of the tools that we're using. Well, well, Kelly, tell us where that's headed, right? Because you want to use data to remove bias, but sometimes the tools we use may also assert, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I am one of those people who, um, and I think our company, I can speak for them, you know, the psychometrics or the, you know, reliability and predictive validity are, are really important for an assessment, but as equally as important is the equity, diversity, and inclusion lens that you bring to these assessments. And standardized assessments have been fraught with these problems for a long time. Um, I think that's one of the things we're most proud of is looking at trying to do things a little bit differently with an equity lens first. But I think what we have to be conscious of is when we bring together data, that there is going to be biases in that process. You know, it's, it's the same reason um, we look for multiple assessments of somebody rather than a single assessment by a single person, because there can be, unfortunately, implicit bias in there. You know, they may not be conscious of having a difficult relationship with that person or, or things like that. And so I think the more we actually have a lens on that, because you can measure some of these things, you can measure, um, you know, consciously, what is some of the bias? How are different groups performing on different tools or with different pieces of information? And I think having a system that allows you to look at it with that lens can be really eye-opening. You know, a data point that we used to maybe always rely on, maybe one of the most problematic and what does that mean to us and how does that change the way we might use that data point or need to add in other data points? I think ah. it's something that's overwhelming maybe to a lot of people, but I think that's why creating a reporting system um, and an analytic software that does the heavy lifting for programs allows them to just reflect on it rather than having to pull it all together and figure out how to calculate it. Very helpful. Very helpful. It looks like you have um, um, a open API or some kind of integration um, mapping, right? Because I think a big part of, of higher ed, and we know this, if you work in a higher ed institution today, I find it unlikely that you track all the different bits of a student's journey. You, know, you think about um, how many of my enrollments drop and how many graduate over this period of time and can I get it in a, in a quarter or how many are going on in leave of absence uh, to as a percentage of the number who are dropping in a given term. I mean, there's just so many ways you can slice and dice the data and it's all in different systems. 
a lot of times. We, we have this com- conversation a lot. It's you've got a CRM, you've got an SAS, you might have a, uh, uh, some kind of software for fundraising. You've got one, f- you've got your learning management system and there's data happening all around you and nobody knows what to do with any of it. And most of the time, what I have seen is it's siloed within particular departments within higher ed. So I found that when I first um, came here to Lindenwood, and uh, I hope I don't get fired for saying any of this, uh, uh, I will tell you that it is an amazing place, Lindenwood, but when I first got here, I said, what's it costing us to do this? Or how do I get this information? And, and someone would say, well, we've never had that information here before. And I go, well, how, how could you make this decision without this information? That is a very common practice. How do you solve for that? So that's a great question. It's a big, it's a big question. Mm, so I knew one you of the, tackle it though. <laughs> I think one of the things is that um, having people understand, and, and this is something, you know, we've heard from, from some of our partners is having the data at your fingertips allows you to look up the analysis in the moment. So you're in a, a committee meeting of some sort um, where it's always hard to pull together all those players. And rather than saying, okay, we'll look that up and next time we'll you know, see what it says or figure out that data or try to get somebody to pull together that analysis, you can do it in the moment, allows you to not lose the thread of that conversation as well. Um, and being able to run different analyses or for programs, you know, with people with different roles, they're going to all want different questions, but to be able to have, you know, alerts or things like that of things that they should be looking at or reminders to run certain reports, um, you know, again, it's just that reminder. It, it, it is a relearning process to build that data back into your decision making. Um, and that's why, you know, with the alerts and things like that, it sort of prompts some of those things. So it can be a little bit more hands off and, and more routine um, so that you are making decisions with the data or you're identifying where you don't have data to make the decision. Because I think that sometimes the other thing is we don't realize that we might be missing data along the way. I love what you said about routine, right? So I think this is a huge takeaway from this episode is about routine. I say to my team here, I say, um, uh, layup drills like before, and I've used this on, on the podcast before, but before you get on the basketball court, you think about your favorite basketball team, before the team starts the game, they're running layup drills. They shoot the three, you shoot some three pointers. They run some layups. They're getting their legs warm. They do that before they go and play. They warm up. A, a big part of data is running your warm ups every day because the game is going to present itself. And if you haven't run those warm ups all the time, every day, to look at the metrics to help you run the business, then how are you going to run the business when the time comes to make a, a critical decision? Uh, it, it's that routine that I think we're just starting to get used to as an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and some have paved the way. I mean, I think, you know, um, for-profit universities and colleges in the early 2000s did a lot of that from the business perspective, like it or not, they did. And um, you come forward now and there are some big universities that like Southern New Hampshire and Western Governors that put millions and millions and millions of dollars into data. And then there's smaller private institutions or public that are getting on the data train and running the routines. And I think it's about routine that makes a difference. What do you, what do you think, Kelly? That's my personal opinion. That was kind of a leading question, but. Yeah. <laughs> I do, but I would say it's for programs. Um, but imagine if it was also for learners too. Mm. Um, imagine, you know, if we sort of started teaching them the routine 
because we, we want them to be self-directed as much as possible. We want them to understand, but you know, we throw so much information at them and so many assessments and so many different things that, you know, it's like, how do we, and sometimes there's advisors that they have, et cetera, but how do they actually wade through all of that information? And part of it is the routine of looking at it. So the more programs do this, and I often say, you know, we're bringing people into our institutions who tend to be incredibly passionate about our mission. Um, you know, they're, they're there because they firmly believe in everything that we're doing as a program and what we're bringing to the community uh, oh, and to the profession. Yeah. And if we can't get them, you know, the chance to think and reflect about how we can improve what we're doing, you know, we're, we're doing a big disservice if we're, they're spending their time trying to collate and track down spreadsheets to, um, you know, look, find information or not even know information is there, you know, wouldn't we much rather want them putting their passion behind improving things? When you said collate spreadsheets, somebody just, their back started sweating hearing, you know, somebody went, Ugh, spreadsheets, go ahead, Chuck. Right. I know that. I know that from our institution too. It's like, yeah. where is that information? Is it in a box that we have to enter into an Excel spreadsheet? Well, and Kelly, I, I just, you, you know, I think the energy that some of those comments that you just made, uh, you know, if we do invert the paradigm, right, to be learner centric, uh, what, what data do you think can a learner best use to be successful, right? So if I'm if I'm jumping in the pipe and want to to have agency of my own journey, mm-hmm. and I came out of a, a foundation, KnowledgeWorks, that you know started that in the early grades, right? So when you see early grades having that agency, you know education is going to change. Uh, so if 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 I were asking you, equip me with the things I need to know. What's what's your What's your history telling you are the things that would make me most successful? Um, if I'm fully honest, it's it's the ability to look at data to create that growth mindset to um, like, if I just think very, very broadly, that's what I want learners to equip themselves. So if I think about specific pieces of information, it's how they're doing relative to their own pattern. Like, are they genuinely on an uptick? Um, or not. Yeah, I think we put a lot on competition. So, you know, students are innately competitive. They want to know how they're doing relative to everybody else, but they sometimes miss their own trajectory and their own track record. And I think that's the thing that helps us create that growth mindset in them um, more so than just pure competition with their peers. And so, you know, and I, I have, I have young kids, so growth mindset is like on my mind all the time. Um, but I think, you know, we need it in higher education just as much. I spoke to a group of faculty and told them that they needed growth mindset as they prepared to launch things with their, their learners. And, you know, data is what helps us do that. Data is what helps us challenge maybe some of our own thinking about how we're doing, um, or what our own pathway is. Yeah. I'm an end user, right? So uh, if, you know, I I wonder a little bit when when Joe asked the question about data equity, right? Because uh, these tools are not, uh, they're not cheap, right? I mean, to to really go all in and and be able to correlate all those sources into usable form. Uh, But if if I came to you and, and said, you know, we're a rural facing institution in South Central Arkansas, um, we, we know we want to eliminate the risk that gets in students' way to complete. Tell me how to get started, right? Yeah, I think that's great. So first of all, I would say um, 
you know, I would start with your, your recruitment and selection process, obviously. Um, that's my, my big, uh, mandate, like where I start thinking always is start at the beginning, bringing in folks who are going to be successful. So, um, one of the tools that I am super proud of, uh, creating is this thing called duet. Um, it's this really cool tool. The concept is to think of the word, are they a fit for our institution as a four letter word is fit a four letter word. Um, because fit means a lot of bias. Um, and really to instead look at the values and priorities of that applicant to the values and priorities of your institution with the analogy being <laughs> some people, you know, this is actually a compliment. Some people are weeds. They'll grow anywhere you put them. Uh, but most of us need the right kind of soil to be nurtured in and to be our best selves and to be excel in the way that we can. So finding those folks who your program can support specifically, you know, who are those folks um, where, you know, your program offers them something that's what they're looking for. You know, I use the analogy of uh, a school I was working with is, you know, a small rural school and they particularly didn't have a strong research side to them. Um, somebody wanted to come in and do a ton of research. And they said, this is an amazing student who another program is going to be able to support uh, a lot more. But if you want to serve an underserved community, um, or if you want to work with a specific population, or you want to work with some of the cool people that we have in a smaller classroom environment, or, you know, have more of that one-on-one, -on -one, you want to come to our program. And those people who just want to go to a didactic lecture and leave, they're not, they're not for our program. And so, you know, finding those ways of, of who's the right folks that you can support is the first step. The next step is, is sort of finding ways to nurture them along the way. And I'm a big proponent. Something we started doing is a lot of developing a lot of formative assessments for the programs because programs don't have always the resources to, you know, we can measure knowledge really well. As we've talked about that well, we know how to put a grade on somebody's um, knowledge, but the other attributes that are going to help them be successful when they graduate, how do we nurture those in our program as well? Um, so those are some of the things I think I think of. Very helpful. Well, we like to, uh, Kelly, kind of wind down our episodes with the same two questions we ask of every guest. Number one, what did we not say about Acuity Insights that you would like to say? So I know you said you've re, uh, had two companies merge and you've rebranded. Is there anything coming up? Research reports, speaking engagements we have going on? I'm just, I'm leading you to anything that you may not be thinking of, events, anything you want to say about Acuity Insights to our audience. And then number two, what do you see as the future of higher education? You can take those in whatever order you want. Ooh, let me start with the future of higher education. I Bold think- move. Bold move. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, let me tackle the big one first. Let me get everybody uh, ready for your answer. Attention. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, in higher education, I think we're, we're going to have to, especially after, you know, everything, everybody struggled with, with COVID, with the changing budgets, with the changing everything, we're going to have to really rethink the way we're supporting learners because folks coming into our programs now are going to look a lot different than maybe they did before. And one of the biggest challenges to us is to be rethinking and nimble and, you know, doing that quality improvement in the moment course correction or a, a changes that we might have to do. Um, and I, I think, you know, obviously I, I have a strong belief that that's going to be powered by data. Um, and I, I think, you know, freeing up folks to work on the mission of the school, 
uh, and to work with the learners and to work on the program is a fundamental key change that we're going to have to make. Finding and fueling people's passion to be in our institution, um, you know, because we see now that people are burned out and they're exhausted. And so how do we reignite the passion that's in them to be at our institution and to serve our missions? Um, what's coming up for Acuity, I guess, is the other question as yeah. well. <clears throat> So we're expanding the uh, delivery of the CASPER test, which is our online situational judgment test. Interestingly, not AI rated, human rated, uh, just to bring in, it's evaluated by members of the community um, who have diverse representation. So we're expanding that across higher education and building the formative assessments that we think are gonna help programs who maybe have more of a retention issue to support their learners as they go through. So the folks that they do bring in are gonna be successful across the board. I love it. Well, I will tell you a couple of things, ladies and gentlemen. Number one, you can head to acuityinsights.com to find out more information about Acuity Insights and look into the data you may not have and how that can help you um, uh, move your institution forward. You can connect with Dr. Kelly. Uh, and uh, where do we connect with you, Dr. Kelly? On LinkedIn, wherever else? Where, where Absolutely. LinkedIn on our website, you can you can reach out to me. Um, feel free to to ask me questions. I would love to engage in conversations about this. Well, all I have to say to you, Kelly, is good job. Well done. I have buttons for everything, ladies and gentlemen. I really do. Uh, I've got one for my guest co-host. He's Dr. Chuck Ambrose. He's chancellor at Henderson State University. This is time number two, Chuck. And you know what that means, my friend? That means you need to send me your address so I can send you an EdUp co-host mug. Can you believe it? Oh, now I'm excited. But uh, thank you, Joe and, and Kelly, especially. We'll, we'll, we'll stay connected. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your guest. She's Dr. Kelly Dorr. She's co-founder of Acuity Insights, and she was, well, basically amazing. Kelly, uh, how was your EdUp experience today here on the podcast? It was uh, absolutely incredible. So Chuck and Joe, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just EdUped. Commencement, the beginning of a new era in higher education by Kate Colbert and Joe Salustio with contributions by Elvin Freitas is now available for pre-order on Amazon. Get your Kindle edition or your softbound book. It's going to be amazing.